This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c Welcome to this episode. I am now welcoming Dr. Sejal Lala, who is a geneticist. And we're going to be talking more about the data and more about the management of children with trisomy 21. So thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Lala. Thanks for having me. This is so exciting and so nice to be able to talk to you today about something that I see really commonly. So thank you so much. I'm so happy we were able to connect through Instagram. And Sejal is actually on Instagram at Lala Genetics. She is going to be building that platform and using this as a way of hopefully building that more. But we're just so excited to have her and share her expertise. So tell me more about what you do as a geneticist. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, And that's a very good question, because not many people know even when they're in my office. So geneticists do pretty much anything. They're kind of like abnormal physicians, like they're abnormal pediatricians, they're abnormal internal medicine specialists, anything that deviates from expected development or expected progression of milestones or expected disease pathology, frankly, it warrants a genetic evaluation. I mean, pretty much anything that doesn't go as we expect that it would. And, um, you know, and the testing is just getting better and more intricate. And, um, you know, we are just able to obtain so much information from doing genetic testing that it is valuable in so many individuals. Well, I want to have you back on again to talk about genetic testing. I'm sure we can talk about that in so much detail because, yes, I have families who want genetic testing when maybe it's not warranted. And then obviously sometimes it is warranted. So I think a whole episode in the future about when genetic testing may be warranted or maybe a visit to a geneticist may be warranted would be a really good topic. I think that's a great idea. I would love to do that. And then today we chose to talk about trisomy 21. And again, that's uh, trisomy 21 is what the medical community and you know Dr. Lala was explaining to me before we started is trying to remove the names associated with certain syndromes. So instead of Down syndrome, we're now trying to talk about it as trisomy 21. And she's going to explain more about why that's called trisomy 21. So tell me briefly what like an overview of the statistics and why it's called trisomy 21. Also a great question. It's called trisomy 21 because what uh, trisomy 21 is, is an extra chromosome number 21. And normally we have two copies of every chromosome. We get one 
set from our moms and one set from our dads. And in the case of trisomy 21, most commonly uh, what happens is in the ova or in mom's eggs, there's abnormal cell division. And so the eggs just happen to have an extra number 21 with it. And then when combined with a sperm with one chromosome 21, then the resultant embryo ends up having three of those copy numbers of chromosome 21. And Down syndrome or trisomy 21 overall results in systemic developmental and physical changes and intellectual disability. It is the most common genetic chromosomal disorder. It's found in about 6,000 live births per year. And so this prevalence actually has been increasing over the last three to four decades. And the life expectancy of individuals with Down syndrome has also been increasing since its discovery in the earlier 1900s. And so back when it was first known, the life expectancy was around 10 years of age or low teens. And now we see individuals living well into their 40s and 50s and so and even older than that. And what do you think the reason is for why the life expectancy has increased? And that's awesome. Awareness um, and also prevention and surveillance, which, um, you know, we'll go into definitely more into the surveillance of, of trisomy 21 and the types of things that specialists and primary providers do look out for. And are there certain risk factors that we know of that can maybe, you know, put a couple at risk of having a child with trisomy 21? There are um, some risk factors that we know of. And the most common one is advanced maternal age. So moms being 35 years and older. However, it's important to know that most children with Down syndrome are born to women under the age of 35, because younger women are generally having more babies. And so just as a population, how many children are born to younger women, because because of that, we see more more trisomy 21 in younger women. And then another risk factor that we know of is if either parent is a carrier of what we call a translocation or a rearrangement of chromosomes involving the number 21 chromosome. And so when you pass on genetic information in a sperm or in an egg, you're passing on 50% of your DNA, theoretically. And if that DNA is not arranged the way that it's supposed to, when you pass on half of your DNA, you may pass on extra missing information because of that. And that can also lead to having a child with trisomy 21. And then we know that having had one child with trisomy 21 would slightly increase your risk of having another one with trisomy 21 because there may be a reason why it happened in the first place that would predispose someone to having it happen again. And what are the ways it can be diagnosed? So this uh, trisomy 21 can be diagnosed prenatally and postnatally. Uh, Prenatally, there are different types of tests. There's non-invasive prenatal screening or testing, uh, which is a maternal blood test. And that can detect uh, an extra number 21 chromosome from the fetus uh, in mom's blood. This is 
pretty accurate. And so that is typically followed up by invasive diagnostic testing, which is looking at either the chorionic villus through a chorionic villus sampling at 10 to 12 weeks of gestation or an amniocentesis after 14 weeks of gestation, looking at the chromosomes of the fetal material. Postnatally, the ability to do genetic testing on the patient themselves is much easier. It's as simple as doing a blood test or even in some cases a cheek swab or any tissue really where DNA can be extracted is useful for chromosome studies. But the easiest is usually blood or a cheek swab or saliva, and that can also pick up trisomy 21. And of course there is testing, but children with trisomy 21 also have some physical features that are very common to those with trisomy 21. What are some of those? When we see babies after they're born and are doing physical exams on them, or even individuals that we haven't seen before that come to clinic for evaluations for suspected trisomy 21, and in the days before genetic testing that was so easily done. This was a clinical diagnosis that was made. And they have a typical facial gestalt with what we call epicanthal folds and slanted palpebral fissure. So that's the shape and the position of the eyes. They have low muscle tone. They have, they typically have some what we call malar flattening. So malar hypoplasia, which is the mid face is um, not as prominent as otherwise seen in individuals who don't have trisomy 21. Um, we can also see what we call brush field spots on their iris. That's a pathognomonic, almost a pathognomonic finding. We don't really see that in other things. Um, and then they have a distinct appearance to their feet with a wide gap between their first and second toes in a lot of cases and can also have differences in the creases of their hands. And so a single crease going across their palms. And this we see in other genetic conditions as well. It's pretty nonspecific. It just indicates hypotonia or low muscle tone when the baby was in utero. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess Meals, chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with Factor Meals because they're ready in two minutes, no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious Factor Meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. 
As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota and I am your host for the podcast No One Told Us where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. And you mentioned that a lot of the outcomes um, in terms of life expectancy has increased. And a lot of that is because of just better monitoring, um, diagnosis. And then uh, what are some of the things that we're monitoring through the child's life? And that's also such an important question. So surveillance for Trisomy 21 is grouped pretty much by stages. In infancy, um, it's important to monitor for different things that can be associated with trisomy 21, such as heart defects with an echocardiogram and a cardiology evaluation, cataracts, uh, feeding difficulties because of this low muscle tone, also constipation because of low muscle tone, looking at blood cell counts to make sure that the red blood cells and white blood cells are not too high or too low, um, decreased thyroid function, which is um, something that individuals with trisomy 21 are at increased risk for hearing loss. Also, something to note, it's really important to always be careful with their neck um, because they can have spinal instability and just to be very mindful of contact sports and trampolines and all the fun stuff as they get older. So, And then later on in life, it's important to monitor for celiac disease, leukemias, anemias, still the hypothyroidism, sleep apnea, vision issues, behavior issues. It's very important to optimize their diet and their exercise because this can help with some of these things that are monitored for. And it is so important to partake in early intervention and therapies and for the child to be 
in a school setting that accommodates their needs um, through something like an IEP or a special classroom or, you know, special circumstances and attention if they need that. And do you find that families who have children with Tresemme 21, do they usually use the child's pediatrician as their primary doctor or do they actually use the geneticist because of all the things that are being monitored? So I think that different places do it different ways since it is so common. Most general pediatricians do feel comfortable managing them on their own and sending to specialists for maybe initial evaluations or if they have concerns regarding specific organ systems. Some may um, refer just because they feel uncomfortable with managing certain aspects of the of the trisomy 21 itself. But I find that for trisomy 21, mostly the pediatrician is doing their monitoring and referring as needed. Yeah, I have a handful of patients with trisomy 21. And I've been practicing at my current practice for about few years now. And uh, yeah, we we manage it at our office, like you said, but you said it perfectly that it just depends on where you're located in terms of what's going to be best, depending, you know, rural city, it can just depend. But you obviously want to have someone who is able to monitor, like Sajel said, all the things that need to be monitored in terms of in the future thyroid and leukemias and celiac disease, and just obviously early on with the tone and all the therapies that may need to be um, coordinated. So it's important to have a medical home wherever you decide that's going to be so that they can help you coordinate all of those things, which obviously is a huge benefit for that child um, for great outcomes and better outcomes. I agree. And it's completely appropriate to refer to a specialist for evaluations that, you know, general pediatricians or family medicine, primary care, or whatever primary care that they're seeing, if they don't feel comfortable, it's no one is going to be upset about having that referral. So I'm curious for you and your practice, um, I know it can vary geneticist to geneticist, but are most of your families with trisomy 21 coming to you because they want the extra guidance or their pediatrician sent them to you? We see a little bit of both. Now, um, trisomy 21 is one of the least frequent visitors that I have to my clinic. I don't see too many of them. And I think that's because the community does a very good job of managing these individuals and also counseling these individuals right from the get-go. And so when I do get children or adults with trisomy 21 in my clinic, they are usually looking for clarification on um, management for something or may want other testing. Now, trisomy 21 is one of those genetic conditions that often does, not often, but can come with other genetic diagnoses as well. And so we see that a lot where um, the trisomy 21s in my clinic usually also have something else. So it is a spectrum. And I'm releasing this episode as well as episode 57 in honor of World Down Syndrome Day, which is March 21st. And it's March 21st because 
March is three and then 21st, 21. So trisomy 21. So my goal for these episodes was really to promote awareness and education about what trisomy 21 or Down syndrome is. What would you say is a misconception you think people have about trisomy 21? It's not really a misconception, but something very important to recognize is that it is a spectrum. Each person with Down syndrome is unique and they will have varying degrees of concern with different things that may be going on with them or what isn't going on with them. And so it is so important to still care for them as their concerns come up and not just based on what the guidelines say. Um, and, you know, no one really fits the book all the time. And so, and rarely do they meet every criteria that we read about. And so it is so important to keep an open mind and accept that there may be different things that need the attention of a specialist or a primary care provider for these patients. That's great. And what would be a final message for everyone listening today? Yeah. Um, so my final message to everyone listening is something I tell my families every day. We cannot, cannot, cannot predict the developmental path of any child or any adult. It's our job as educators and caregivers and providers to give them whatever we can to help them thrive from the inside out. And then we leave it up to them to show us where, where that leads and where we may be doing more for them to allow them to do more for themselves. You said that beautifully. You know, my final message is that we need to know these things because it's important to get the interventions that are necessary, whether that's monitoring for medical issues, whether that's um, services like OTPT speech, all of these things provide the best possible outcome for that child. And that's our goal with any child. We don't look at it compared to another child. We don't look at it compared to another family. It's really that goal for that child that we look at in any child that comes into our office as a pediatrician, geneticist. And so I know you can agree with that. Yes. And, you know, and I, I think that you said that beautifully because it is so important to let these children surprise us because they will, um, you know, and if I placed a bet on how a child would do, I would lose every time because they exceed my expectations always, you know, and so it really is wonderful to watch them blossom and just to be there to support them how best we can. And Abby mentioned that in the other episode that she talked about how, you know, with that diagnosis, so many things that she thought would be a little bit more long term, such an example that you gave earlier, like heart conditions that can be associated with Down syndrome for her family in particular, that is something that is actually getting better. And so she shared how she was so excited. And when you think about all the statistics and numbers, it could get really hard, right? Like I didn't really ask ask you all of that, Sejal, because I didn't want to go into, well, what is the percentage of outcome? As a mother who had a child with an infant stroke, I went through that rabbit hole, you know, of like, okay, well, what about this? What's the percentage that he's going to have this outcome or this neurological devastation? It was, it was awful because I'm such a scientific mind that I kept wanting to know, well, what is the chances? And many times we just have to go by, okay, this is the child in front of me. I got to have some hope here. And really just like we said earlier, invest in the development for that child and just hope for the best. We don't, it's hard because for me also being very type A, I, you want to control so many things and you realize that, you know what, I can't. And I just got to do the best I can with this child. And it is going to be the best for your family. Exactly. And, you know, and another thing I also tell families because 
they do come in with numbers and they are so interested. Statistics are really all we have already observed. It's numbers that come based off of the spectrum that we knew, but the spectrum that we know today is not the entirety of what's out there. And so, you know, having a statistic, yeah, it's nice to have a number, but at the end of the day, you know, we are not detecting the milder end of the spectrum of um, disease and genetic conditions anywhere. And that as we do more testing and find a varied uh, presentation for the same genetic condition, we're seeing that these numbers don't really mean anything at the end of the day. I could not agree more. Oh, Sage, it was so nice having you on. And like I said, I really would love to have you back on to talk about genetic testing in general. I get so many questions and I'm sure we can, uh, you know, clear the air on so many misconceptions about genetic testing. And again, Sage, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. As always, please leave a review, share this episode with a friend, share it on your social media. Make sure to follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram and subscribe to my YouTube channel, PedsDocTalkTV. We'll talk to you soon. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of TILT is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the TILT Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.